it is hot. The air conditioning is still not fixed. Yeah, state the obvious. In case you were wondering, no, the air conditioning was not fixed this week like we'd hoped. Um, Jeremy said I could blame him for not having air conditioners in the window. Um, if you need to sleep today, we understand. Um, let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this opportunity we have each week to come together and learn from you, to hear from our God and to hear of the wonderful plan of redemption that you have for us. We're thankful that you have saved us. We're thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has done for us all that you require of us. We're thankful not only that you have saved us, but we're thankful that you have revealed this plan of salvation to us so that we may rejoice in it. We pray that you will help us today to that end, that we would be refreshed in the gospel together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans. Pastor Boyd is away today. Pastor Greg is away today. I'm all you get. And I'm going to attempt a minor miracle. And that is, we're going to try to survey the book of Romans today. <laughs> yeah, don't laugh. Come on. <laughs> All right, we have the Sunday school hour, we have the morning service, and we have the evening service. And uh, I was telling somebody this morning that we can, I could probably survey the book of Romans in 60 seconds. I th- I've done it before in one hour. I don't know that I can do it in three hours. I, you know, you start getting bogged down. So, here's the reality. If I can get through, by the end of tonight, if I can get through chapter 5, I'll be happy. If I can get through chapter 8, I'll be really delighted. Um, if I can get through the whole book, well, then we can say that we still believe in miracles. Um, but the plan is to work our way through the argument, and then, however far I get, we'll pick it up at that point uh, next month when I'm back. Um, so that's the plan today, uh, this morning in the Sunday School Hour, Romans chapters 1 through 3, hopefully. And so we'll call this Survey of the Book of Romans Part 1, or The Need for Justification. The Need for Justification. You'll see why I call it that if you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, Paul, as much as says in verse 16 that his purpose is to preach the gospel. And we have in verses 16 and 17 something of Paul's text that he takes that he is going to expound throughout the rest of the book. This is his foundational statement, verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And you're going to keep an eye on this as we go through. He does not say here the love of God is revealed in the gospel, although that's very true. That's not his point here. 
His point is to show how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. From faith to faith, which I take to mean something like by faith and nothing but faith. We'll see how he develops that as well. And then he takes an Old Testament quotation for his starting point, and this is from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And if I, I think if I, if I retranslate this just a little bit here, it will help us get the sense of what Paul is going to be unpacking uh, through the rest of the book. He who through faith is righteous shall live. He who through faith is righteous shall live. That is, he's not speaking of living by faith. He's speaking of how to be righteous by faith. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And this is the point that Paul is going to expound now and and then apply and, and unpack in various ways throughout the rest of this letter. Now you'll see the first word of the next verse, verse 18. For, because, that is, alright, he has said that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel by faith and nothing but faith, because he who through faith is righteous shall live. And now he's going to establish that. And as I say here, we start with the need of justification. And here in chapter 1, verse 18, through almost the end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul launches out on this universal indictment on the entire human race. And he gives us a series of indictments against humanity here. Chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, we have his indictment against humanity for the rejection of the witness of creation. If you're going to be taking notes, we'll see some others as well. Their violation of the witness of conscience, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And then after that, their violation of the witness of special revelation as well. But here, the violation of the witness of creation. Chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Alright, his first statement then is that God's wrath has been revealed. I said this is going to be an exposition of the need of justification in these passages. The need for justification, first of all, is seen in the fact that the wrath of God is being revealed against whom? Verse 18. Okay, wicked people. Not just wicked people, though. What else? Can you think of another way to characterize it, verse 18? Yes. Yes, that's that's good. There's something more I'm looking for. That's all right. All right, verse 18, somebody else? Yes, that's where I'm going. So it's not just wicked people, but it's rebelliously wicked people is the specific point. So they, they have the truth and they suppress it. They're rejecting the truth. It's not like they are ignorant of the truth. God's wrath is being revealed against people who know better than what they're doing. That's the point that Paul's going to expound throughout chapter 1, 2, and 3. The wrath of God is being revealed against people who know better than what they're doing. 
It's not just a vague, general, generic kind of sinfulness, but it is specifically a, uh, a wickedness that has the character of rebellion. They know better. And what he will say throughout this whole passage, time after time, is that each of us knows better than what we do. And so here he's speaking of, in reference to, the heathen, those who have never heard the gospel, they've never heard of Moses or Jesus or anything like that, but they, the truth that they have, they hold it down, they suppress it. And so he goes on to explain that. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So here's an explanation or a vindication of God's wrath against humanity. The problem is not a lack of knowledge. We're going to see this in a little bit as well. I'm going to ask a more pointed question in this regard. But their problem is not a lack of knowledge. The problem is not ignorance. The problem is rebellion. And so he explains in verses 19 and 20, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it. He's made it clear. Namely, his individual attitude his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, all of this is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So for Paul, the, this innate knowledge of God is the starting point in preaching the gospel. You don't have to go to people and say, did you know there's a God? And they say, there's a what? There's a God. What's a God? Oh, well, God is, and you try to explain what a God Oh, I never knew that. But intuitively, from the creation itself, we are aware of God. We'll see some more of that as we go along. Now, a question here that comes up that we should, should answer at this point before we go on is how is it that humanity recognizes all of this? How is it that looking out at the created order, man, humankind, recognizes something about God? And of course the, well, you want to answer it? How is it that we recognize this about God? How is it that we have this awareness? Image bearers is exactly it. This is what distinguishes us between, distinguishes us from the animal world, or anything else. What is it to be in the image of God? We have a couple of statements in the epistles that give us a, a few clues into it, like in Colossians and Ephesians speaks of the image of God as, as uh, being constituted, at least in part, by knowledge, rational understanding, righteousness, a sense of right and wrong, I think we can go a little bit more basic than that. Um, let me do it this way. E.B. Warfield has a really interesting little article on the where he deals with the statement in Matthew 12 where Jesus says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Now, that's really not Jesus' point. He just says that as something that's a given that we all recognize. Warfield stops, though, and asks, how is it? that a man is more valuable than a sheep. 
And he begins to trace out several different answers that we can give to that. But he comes down to it. At the bottom, what makes man more valuable than a sheep is just this matter of being created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God, what distinguishes us from the animal world, is that we have an inexpungible sense of God. And not just an awareness of God, but if there is in us an awareness of God, however vague, if there's an awareness of God, there is with that a sense of dependence upon God, and there's also inevitably a sense of obligation and accountability to God. So there's not just this sensus detatus, this sense of God, this awareness of God. There's a semen religionis, that is a seed of religion as well. We recognize that God is, and recognizing that God is, there is just inescapably a sense of dependence upon him and a sense of obligation or accountability to him. And this is what distinguishes us from the rest of the created order. The rest of the created order is no less dependent on God and no less obligated to God. What distinguishes us from them is that we are aware of that. Created in God's image, there's this memory, reminiscence of God, however much it has been repressed. And so, with that, a recognition of God and with a recognition of our dependence on Him and a recognition of our obligations to Him, there is such a thing as conscience. There's a sense of justice, right and wrong. And if there's that, there's also a sense of guilt, because we all know, we all know, we all know that we violated some standard of righteousness. With that, there's a sense of coming judgment. Paul will talk about that a little later, verse 32. All of this is just inescapable. We're created with this capacity to know God. Intuitively, we recognize that God is, that we are dependent on Him, and that we are obligated to Him, that there's been a breaking of that relationship by our rebellion against Him, and so on. Now then, I've already begun to answer the question, but in verses 20 and following then, Paul begins to answer uh, the question more fully, what is it that we know about God from the created order? Never mind special revelation where a prophet comes along and says, thus says the Lord. But from the general created order, what do we know about God? Verse 19, God has shown it to us. Where? Verse 20, his invisible invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That is, there's this intuitive awareness of God that's recognizable in the created order. That is, all of creation testifies to a creator. There's a recognition that someone made it. God has left his fingerprint, as it were, on all of the created order, and we who are made in his image can see it. And so the invisible attributes of God are seen, which is an interesting 
twist of words, the invisible attributes of God are seen in the things that he has made. So, from the created order, we know that God is. We know that he is creator, so we know he's powerful. We know something of his wisdom. We know something also, as he will go on to say, of his righteous requirements on us. And this is what Paul means in verse 21 when he says, although they knew God. That is, not that they are good friends with him, but they know enough about God. They recognize his work in the created order. They recognize his existence. They recognize his authority and our accountability to him and so on. So verse 19, we know God. Verse 20, we know God, even apart from special revelation. Verse 28, um, even though we did not acknowledge God, there's this awareness of him. So God is known intuitively and God is known by rational inference from the created order. You find other passages like this, most notably in the Old Testament, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, and so on. Go back to verse 18. The wrath of God is, let me stretch the translation a little bit, is being revealed, to stress the present tense, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So the question comes up, where is the wrath of God being revealed today? Do we see people getting thrown into hell? I don't see that. Where do we see the wrath of God being revealed? I'm sorry? Yeah, have you ever um, talked to a friend at work maybe, or a neighbor, after a tsunami or tornadoes or hurricanes, something bad happens like that? And the question comes is brought to you because they know you're a Christian. Why would God do that? Or why would God allow that? Now probably in their mind, there's an accusatory attitude that is entirely wrong, entirely rebellious. But what's interesting is when they ask the, that question, why would God allow that, they're stumbling onto something. And the best way to answer, I think, is simply to say, that's a good question. Why would God allow that? Is this a sign of God's great love for us and tolerance of all of our sins? Well, quite obviously is not. It's an indication that he's not happy with us. It's an indication of his wrath. And so all of these what we call natural disasters that happen, upheavals of nature, or terrorists flying airplanes into large buildings, killing innocent people. Whatever you have of disasters that happen, these are not tokens of God's love. They are tokens of God's wrath. And so we ought to, according to Paul here, be looking at these things that happen as signposts along the road saying, warning, bridge is out. Bridge ahead is out. 
a worse disaster is coming, which is exactly how Jesus teaches it in Luke chapter 13. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And there is an awareness of this on the part of humanity, so much so that Paul can say in verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In their heart of hearts, they know better than they do. And this is true of every last one of us, no matter how little or how much special revelation has been given. Even for those who have had no special revelation, have not had the privilege of a prophet coming along and saying, Thus says the Lord, or Moses revealing this or the other, or having lived this side of things where they can hear what Jesus has said in the full revelation of God. Even with just the revelation of the natural world itself, there's a recognition of God, a recognition of dependence on Him, a recognition of obligation to Him, a recognition then of justice, and a recognition of guilt, and a recognition of a coming judgment. We call it conscience. And so, verse 20, therefore, they were without excuse. Now, this, this helps us answer a question. Well, let's just take a couple of questions that come up in this regard. I think it answers. Number one, when we were asking this morning, a couple of us talking in the aisle here, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, I'm sure you've heard, heard us talk about this here before, but there's, a, there's an assumption smuggled into that question, isn't there? I read an answer to that just last week on the Internet. It was really great. Clever. Why do bad things happen to good people? Answer, that only happened once, and he volunteered. <laughs> or let's ask another question I'm sure you've had asked to you, and you may have asked yourself. What about those who've never heard the gospel? Will they be condemned too? How do you answer that? There's another assumption smuggled into that question. The assumption smuggled into that question is somehow that until people hear the gospel, they're neutral or not guilty. And what we find here is that every last one of us knows better than what we do. Whatever degree of revelation we've had, we've rebelled against it. We know better than we do. The guilt has already been established. And so general revelation may not be enough to give a gospel witness, and it's not, but it is enough to establish condemnation. And so, verses 18 and 19, the human response to all of this that they know is to suppress it. And then verses 21 to 23, he gives further explanation of that. This revelation from God is continuously recognized, repeatedly rebelled against, and we all know it. Now, I think it's helpful to point out here that the Apostle Paul may be saying some is, is may not be speaking here in terms of of the psychological awareness 
on the part of every individual. In other words, he may be he is saying more here than every person would be willing to admit. But at the same time, he's saying what is true of every one of us. And so the consequences of it, verse 21, Therefore, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, give, give thanks to Him, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what we call the, you know, theologians like to have clever words for things. It makes us sound like we know more than we do. The noetic effects of sin, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic effects of sin, comes from a Greek word that has to do with the mind. Noetic effects of sin, there it is. They became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is a theme that Scripture picks up, Old Testament and New Testament, all the time, that we have the lost so settled on their way that they know is right, the way, the way that seems right to a man. The end of it is the way of death. All right, they become futile in their thinking. God's response to it all is outlined for us in verses 24 to 27. And we have three times repeated a phrase that is just absolutely disastrous. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, here we go again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And then again, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, maliceness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossipers, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What's happened here? God has revealed himself in the created order. And unanimously, humanity has said, we don't. And they give themselves against it. We won't have it. And these standards of righteousness that they recognize intuitively from the created order by virtue of the fact that they're created in God's image, we won't have it. And they rebel against what they know is right. And they rebel, and they rebel, and they rebel until God finally says, have it your way. God gives them up. And that is precisely the very worst thing God could ever do to any of us. Have it your way. Have it your way. Gives them up to the vanity of their minds. Gives them up to their futile thinking. Gives them up to their rebellion. You won't have it? All right, take it. Take your rebellion. Now, if that is what Paul is saying here, then I think it, it helps us adjust our thinking in regards to some... Some things that we often say 
in regards to the encroaching evil in our own society. Often we'll look at the encroaching homosexuality and the, the, the growing approval of it societally and all of that, and we'll say something like, like Billy Graham, I think, was, was quoted to say one time, uh, if, if, God, if God doesn't punish America uh, for her sin, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Well, there's something to that. If God is who he says he was, judgment must come on that. But I think there's a way that we should tweak that just a little bit to understand more precisely what Paul is saying here. I'm not doubting the truthfulness of what he said, but I'm saying we should tweak it to get more precise about it. What Paul is saying here is that once we see this on a societal level, it is not indication of a coming judgment. Oh, it is that. But it is also indication that judgment has already come. God is settled. Have it your way. That's a frightening. God gives them over to their reprobate mind. There's a bit of a play on words in that in verse 28. They don't approve of God. God gives them over to their disapproval. Yeah? Oh, yes, because, because while they... The heart of man is so e so deeply evil and so deeply committed to evil. There's also the teaching in Scripture of common grace, where God restrains and God restrains and God restrains, and finally lets go. We find another example of that in Second Thess Thessalonians, where uh, the restrainer is lifted. Whoever the restrainer is, in the end time we can talk about that another time. But but finally the restraint is lifted, and God says, "Have it your way." And there's this great onslaught of, of sin. In other words, while while in our heart of hearts, humanity is as evil as it can possibly be. It doesn't give expression to that always as fully as it might. Each of us could be worse than we are. Hitler could have been worse. Hussein could have been worse. And what he's saying here is he finally lets go. And if you pardon the expression, all hell breaks loose. Yes? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And what's and this has all kinds of implications regarding free will and all kinds of things too. God gives you over. Okay, have it your way. Do your free will thing. How's it going to work for you? Um, but yeah, like I say, it's just the most disastrous thing that, that God could that could ever happen to us. God says, "Have it your way," and having it our way, we take our rebellion even further. So, in summary. There's a knowledge of God innate in all of us, recognizable in the created order. Yet it is suppressed, redirected. Worship of God is redirected to creature rather than creator until finally God gives them up and there's an advancing acceleration of evil. All right. That's chapter 1 then, moving right along. Chapter 2, we have 
if you do chapter 1, verses 18 and following, we have the violation of the witness of creation. Now we have the violation of the witness of conscience in verses 1 through 16. Let's just see how he starts in the first few verses here. Therefore you are, have no excuse, O, every one of, o man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Would you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Fascinating statement in verse 5. I've always found just almost, it's fascinating but almost terrifying. Storing up wrath against the day of wrath. He speaks here of sin as being piled up in a bank account on which you will withdraw someday. Every next sin, every next sin, every next sin is part of what plays into the doctrine of the uh, of, uh, degrees of judgment in the end time. Each sin piled in the bank and stored up, stored up, stored up, stored up until finally in the day of judgment all of it comes back in judgment against us. Now Paul reaches his point here, I think, uh, more explicitly when we get to verse, verses 13 and following. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For, and here's his explanation of that, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Follow here? This is conscience. Gentiles who do not have the law, they've never heard of Moses, they've never heard a prophet come and say, Thus says the Lord, Thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not commit adultery, any of that. They do not have the law. But by nature, do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Conscience. While their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse, depending, on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here's a man who has never heard of Moses, he's never heard of a prophet, he's never had special revelation from God. Certainly never heard the full revelation that has come in Christ. And yet he understands it's wrong to steal, wrong to murder. I've talked to missionaries that have, I'm sure you've heard the same kinds of things, who've tested this, they've gone to the most remote part of the world, and they'll have people who are converted and they will confess afterwards, you know, even back in those days when we were killing our enemies and eating them, we knew it was wrong. Never heard of, God, of, of this true God in special revelation. Never heard the law. But there's an awareness of right and wrong. It doesn't matter where you go. There's an awareness of right and wrong and basic principles of righteousness. And so the conscience accuses or excuses, depending on how they follow it. And yet Paul's point is what he's developed in chapter 1 already, and that is, even though they have that etched on their conscience, 
we all know better than we do. We don't follow that either. And so we see in the created order, and we have in our conscience an awareness of what God requires, and still every one of us says, no thanks, won't have that. And you see what Paul's doing here, the larger point. He's developing the need for justification. And that need is grounded in the fact the wrath of God is being revealed against rebellious creatures. We've rebelled against the witness of creation. We've rebelled against conscience. We won't have God ruling over us. Well, then we have in chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, uh, we have indictment against humanity for the violation now of special revelation in the law of God. Here he takes up precisely this situation with Jews, Israel who has received the law of God and yet has rebelled against God and the whole history of Israel is a demonstration of its rebellion against God. God has given them the law and it didn't fix a thing. God revealed himself in the created order. Men see him in the created order. And we suppress suppress God's righteousness in our unrighteousness. Suppress it. We won't have it. We won't have it. There's a witness of God in our conscience, in our heart of hearts. We know we're obliged to him. We're obligated. We understand basic principles of righteousness, right and wrong. We won't have it. We rebel against it. We continue to do worse than we know. Guilty. Guilty. And so God comes and gives the law. Chooses Israel as his people. Reveals his law to them. That should help, right? And what happened? Even with fuller, special revelation, Israel now behaving as sort of a microcosm of the whole world, rebels against the law that was given. And what do you say at the end of that? Chapter 3 Verse 4, when God judges, it is a just judgment. No matter what of these categories you fall into, God, this is a huge theme in the Bible as well, but God is just in his judgment. And so, verses 9 and following, he regroups with this universal indictment of all, of a, of a unanimous sinfulness on the part of humanity. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not very flattering, is it? I think just about every time I read this passage, I'm reminded of the time I, I was when I was teaching New Testament at Penn State. When, uh, one of the students raised his hand at some point. I forget exactly what was being said, but raised his hand at one point and says, our psychology professor says that we are not, um, basically good. Humanity is basically good. And I said, okay, the question in this class is, is that a Christian notion? 
And so we went to two, three different passages, and I ended up with this one in Romans chapter 3. And I said, all right, somebody read verses 10 through 18. And someone read it to the class. And I just paused. And the guy sitting in the back row raises his hand. And I think it was the same guy that, that raised the point in the first place. And he says, he's not saying we're basically good. He's saying we're the scum of the earth. There you are. This is Paul's point through this whole passage to establish universal guilt. So verse 10, universal sinfulness. Verse 11, universal ignorance of God became futile in their imaginations. Verses 11 and 12, universal rebellion. Verses 13 and following, expressions of their inward depravity as well. Their throat is an open grave. What an awful, awful expression. You know, you go to the doctor, he says, open your, stick out your tongue and say, ah. And he looks in there and judges your health. Paul is doing that here in a moral way. He looks down the throat and he sees an open sepulcher. I've never seen a grave come open. I don't care to. But that's the kind of corruption Paul says is on the inside of every one of us in a moral sense. So this is his verdict. Rebellion. And we should see this here. I've only got a minute. We should see this here that Paul's guilt, Paul's verdict is basically twofold. All of humanity is guilty. All of humanity is depraved. Guilty, worthy of condemnation in the judicial sense because we are universally depraved. There's something about us that drives us away from God and keeps us from Him. So his point here then is the universal lostness of humanity. We're helpless, as lost as we could be. This is what we mean by the term total depravity. We don't mean that every man is as bad as he could possibly be. What we mean is we are as bad off as we can possibly be. We're guilty. We've sinned against God, and we want to. We can't fix the problem, and wouldn't if we could. Bad off as we can possibly be. So Paul's first point here is of the universal lostness of humanity. His larger point in all of this, and we'll pick this up in the next hour, is that unless there is some way for God to justify us freely, we're lost. Unless there is some way for God to come and from His side give us what He requires of us, we have no hope whatever. And that's Paul's point at the beginning of the passage. Verse 17, righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith, because he who through faith is righteous, it's being revealed in this free way because the wrath of Revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness because of the universal guilt and depravity of humanity. Any questions quickly? We'll pick this up in the next hour then. Yes? That's right. That's right. Now, on the insurance industry's part, it's more an excuse. But what's another discussion? <laughs> Very good. All right. Any other questions, comments, smart remarks, or whatever? Yes. 
Not necessarily. Um, wow, that's another, another big discussion. Um, it is not to say that when a tsunami comes, God is particularly angry at those people and not the rest of us. Uh, when Katrina hits um, New Orleans, it doesn't, it's not, we're not necessarily to conclude from that that God had a special purpose because it's such a wicked city. Um, it may be. I can't know that because we have too much other what seems to be random to say that God has a sovereign purpose that we can't always know. Um, so I don't want to say it's always tit for tat. It's not. And uh, we'll see some more of that when we get to chapter 5, whether that's this morning or tonight. Probably tonight. Yes, Luke 13. Yeah. That's right. Don't think that you're, you're any better, and that's why it hit them and not you. Yeah, that's right. Okay, we, we must go. Uh, I'll let you go. It's, time, it's over time. Thank you. <laughs>